Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. When I was in college, I, uh, I did landscaping to pay the bills. It was good, honest work. Nathan, you like it. And uh, the guy I worked for was Benny Hen's bodyguard. He had been Benny Hen's bodyguard uh, for a while. He was a crazy charismatic, and he'd always get frustrated. I believe in prosperity preaching, and he would actually pay me to sit down and watch Benny Hen and other people. And um, but back then, I would give him forty hours, and that's it. Like at forty hours, you know, if you had, you got me eight hours a day, and for eight hours a day, I'm going to work hard. But it doesn't work that way in landscaping. Like, when you're, when you're rolling out sod, you've got to keep rolling it out. Because if it rains and that sod gets full of water, it's game over. But I wouldn't stay. He'd offer to pay me extra $100. Said, hey, Mike, just stay. Let's finish this. Right? And, uh, and he finally got sick of me being weak and whiny and just rebuked me. He just rebuked me hard. You know, work is from God. And uh, so I got Benny Hen's bodyguard laying into me for my weak attitude and view of work, and, uh, and it stung, and I was quiet, and I rolled sod that night and didn't get extra $100 because I knew I was wrong. And, uh, and that, for me, was a journey of starting to study work and vocation and uh, what does it mean. And, you know, everyone talks about uh, work being cursed, and, uh, but, but it's a gift from God. It's been marred, as we'll get into and uh, so every year when we're going to have a conference, we're trying to think of a topic that, uh, that needs to be touched on in our culture and, and that will be helpful. And we live in a time of immense wealth and immense laziness and uh, unending distractions and a poor view of work um, where people want to be rewarded for not even being man-pleasers, let alone pleasers of the Lord, right? And so that is why we're doing this topic. Because you need to have a good attitude towards work. You need to have a scriptural attitude. And we need to raise up our kids uh, to love to work with their hands. And you can't get to that without having a solid theology. And so as we were thinking about who bring it in, I thought, you know, Mark could teach on this. And that would be helpful. Uh, so who is Mark Robinson? Correct me if I get this wrong. Okay. Um, he actually has, he knows Greenville pretty well. He was here at Bob Jones uh, University, where he got his BS in music and an MA in religion back in the 90s? Music minor. Music minor. Okay, gotcha. Oh, I got that all wrong. Well, I, I upped your credentials. <laughs> um, right, as of now, he serves as a pastor at Covenant Community Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, PA. In transition. Okay. Let's see how many other things I can get wrong. I'm going to try to get them all wrong tonight if I can. Um, but he's been serving in the PCA for uh, many years and directs the Kern Foundation for Faith, Work, and Economics. Yeah? Got that one right. We're going to count that one. Um, but I've known Mark for a while through my friend Tim, and, uh, and we've been friends on, friends on Facebook, and uh, happy to have him here. Uh, ask that you give him your full attention and uh, just ask that the Lord would uh, draw out sin and, and show you where you're thinking about things wrong and that uh, we would uh, be fruitful workers to his glory. So, Mark, come on up.
Good to get back down to South Carolina after a, a long time away. I, I drove through and stayed with some friends once in the Greer or Taylor's area. I can't remember. Probably almost 20 years ago. And getting back down here has reminded me how thin my northern blood has become. You live that close to Canada, this humidity is just, boy. And this is, this, I hear it's not even that bad right now, right? So, but it's actually good to be back, good to get, it, get down to Trinity and to uh, actually meet face-to-face -face as opposed to just Facebook to Facebook, um, Michael and Andrew. So, good to be here. Why don't we pray again? Ask the Lord to attend and help us. Father, we've come before you not as masters of the word, but to be mastered by the word. So incline our hearts to submit, to bow, to your wise, infinite counsels as they are expressed here in your holy word. And not just words on a page, but show us the word of life himself, Jesus. And that we bow the knee to him in whatever regard and way he shows us. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone's once said and stuck with me, if you aim at nothing, you hit it every time. So we're going to aim at something. If we miss it, we miss it. We know what we miss. So here's, here's the aim for a few times together here. The aim is to think God's thoughts after him through attending to the biblical account of man's work and endeavoring to live it out faithfully in Christ empowered by the Spirit to the glory of God the Father. That's a mouthful. Let me say that again. If you want, you want any notes, any concrete things, just ask me afterwards, and I'll gladly just give you whatever, okay? The aim is to think God's thoughts after him through attending to the biblical account of man's work and endeavoring to live it out faithfully in Christ, empowered by the Spirit to the glory of God the Father. So we're looking at the account, we want to live it faithfully, that's done in Trinitarian, in, in our triune God, in, in Christ, through the Spirit, to God's glory. And let me just ask the basic question, why in the world should we talk about work? Mark, Mike laid out a little bit there, but why, why talk about work? Is it just an interesting thing? Is it just kind of faddish people are doing that these days? Or, or, or what is it? Why talk about it? And the most basic fundamental reason is God gives it so much weight in Scripture. When you open up your first page of the Bible, you think of a triangle here. And God creates man, and he sets up after creating the world, and he sets up and on the seventh day that he finished the work. Scripture says he finished the work that he had done, and he rested it. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And this is the rest of achievement, not inactivity. God didn't just stop acting. It's the rest of achievement. And then you see worship, Sabbath worship is, is built on that foundational Sabbath principle. We're called to look back because in six days he created the world. And the seventh day rest, and we do likewise. To be godly is to be like God. And we do likewise in worshiping him, right? And then Eden was this was like a, a temple, won't break it all out, but it was like a temple when you read it. It's structured as though the, 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 the garden is this temple palace with this priest Adam 
in the presence of God, right? He walked with God in the cool of the day. There's a lot of passages that kind of give us that, that imagery. So you see that worship was central to man and creation. But also, there's a second W, that's the top of the pyramid, a wife. He didn't leave the man alone and gave him a wife. So worship and a helper who corresponds to him. And they weren't just there enjoying eternal honeymoon, paradise. He gave him work. Gave him, well, actually, even before he gave him a wife, he assigned, assigned him. But that big third thing. So he's called to worship, gives him a family, a wife, and says, take dominion. This big globe I've set you on, you be fruitful, multiply, subdue, take dominion. So you have this tripod of civilizational success. Worshiping God, family, wife, and work that serves as a kind of bedrock of how the world is to progress historically before God. And you can notice, if you want to destroy a community, if we want to destroy any community to ensure that it doesn't flourish and be what God has intended it to be. Knock out one of those tripod planks. Destroy the family. Make the churches lose their vitality. No gospel just become social clubs or just catacombs. Or take away the jobs. You know, what's interesting in our day is that the communists, I was, reading some, I was reading some Marx and Engels, and I dip in from time to time just to see how they conceived of civilization and why it was such a miserable failure. And what you find out is they had more wisdom about what contributes to success as humans, civilizational growth, than most modern-day evangelicals. They knew you needed to seize labor, take jobs out of, take, take control of the job market, push the churches away, make them atheist temples, and destroy the family. <laughs> they knew to get control of people, they had to take over those three spheres. And success, a successful civilization and society is one where those three parts of the tripod are actually functioning well. But we're only dealing with one of them. But, but the argument is, this is such a key part of what it means to actually be human. <laughs> is to be called to labor, to work, to take dominion, to subdue. And so let's pull out that one, one, one little piece of the tripod. No, so there's just basic time arguments, too, when you think about just how life is lived. The average American spends about one hour a week in a religious service. Now, you're devoted evangelical reform types. You probably, let's quadruple that. So you spend four hours or so in church with adult ed or small groups or whatever the case may be, right? Well, the average full-time employee, and we're talking about um, work for a company for remuneration, and we'll get to what, what we mean by work and what the scripture means by work in a minute. But the average 
full-time employee spends about 47 hours a week. So that's more than 10 times the time someone spends in church, in institutional church. They're individually working more than 10 times. We basically, if so, we don't attend to what it means to work to the glory of God. You actually can't be a mature disciple of Jesus without attending to what that means. Because you're spending more than 10 times doing work than you are in church. Work is occupying so much more time than worship. And I think there's also an opportunity for believers who want to carry out the Great Commission here. Who want to take the gospel out. You remember the slogan, many of you probably remember this slogan during uh, the campaign, uh, the Clinton campaign, President uh, uh, Clinton, from, uh, 20 years ago now. There was the I vote Dow Jones, not Paula Jones. Anybody remember that? That basically economics is more important than moral virtue. We're not concerned about bedroom stuff or whatever. We're more concerned about boardroom stuff. So you vote Dow Jones. And I really think that's a true sentiment. I think people, I think the West has privatized morality and virtue and those things and are very interested in material success, economics, and things like that. So talking about work, economics, labor, is something I think gives more of an entry, a segue into talking with the average unbeliever. Because very few people, fewer and fewer people, just up and walk through the doors of a church and say, what must I do to be saved? Society is increasingly secularizing and just people don't see pastors as having the answers to life's questions. They go to their therapists, especially when I was in New York City. That was just, just that's the guru. Psychotherapists are the guru. But work is an entry. I think it's an entry. Most people work. Still, the vast majority of Americans are employed in some way, shape, or form. So this becomes a, an entree into, I think, talking about uh, the things of God and the gospel with people. The big reason is just the pillar that work is. Now, let me read just a couple definitions of work. And then I'm, we'll, sit, we'll sit on one. <laughs> hope we can they can stick and again if you want a copy of this or whatever i'll be glad to give it to you or if you quick write or transcribe or whatever whatever the case may be here's what one author says work is work is the fruitful transformation of the world through human effort and skill in ways that serve our shared human needs and give glory to god I don't like the word transformation, but I think you know what he's getting at. Here's another definition, a lot more simple, kind of driven by how Martin Luther understood work vocation. It's this very simple. Lester de Coster says, work is the form in which we make ourselves useful to others. Very practical. Luther said, you know, there were two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God. We, we, we have two great commandments, right? Love God, their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbors as ourselves. He said some activities go in the love God column, one kingdom. 
Some go in the love your neighbor as yourself. The work that we do, which Luther called the mask of God, that God was veiled in human work. God feeds us through farmers and he heals us through doctors and things. So he was saying God's providential work and care is veiled in human work. The work we do that serves our neighbor, the way we love our neighbor is through our work. That's in the other kingdom. So the coster's taken off on that. Work is the form in which we make ourselves useful to others. I want to go with the fuller definition. Work is the fruitful transformation of the world through human effort and skill in ways that serve our shared human needs and give glory to God. I think that it's quorum deu, it's it's loving God, it's loving our neighbor, and it talks about what work actually does. It's a fruitful transformation of the world through human effort and skill. So let's kind of go with that. Now, let's just walk through some of the narrative of work in the scripture. Genesis, let me read Genesis one twenty-eight, and then Genesis 2, 15 through 17, right? Genesis one twenty-eight. it kind of quoted parts of this already. We know it. And God blessed them, and God said to them, this is to the first pair, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then chapter 2, Genesis, verse 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Concentrating on the work it and keep it. Put them in the garden to work it and keep it. Of course, this is the creation of our first parent. And immediately we're told he was put in the garden and given a job. (laughs) That third pillar the tripod, the third prong. He was told to work. And of course, Adam is representative humanity. We are all in him. We died in him. We're sinned in him. So this scene is about us. He works. And by extension, we all are called to, to work. We've all been put in a garden of sorts to labor and to work. So it's a pattern for us. And what does it say? Well, obviously... It's telling us work is of the kind of activity that tames creation. Subdue it. Creation's wild. Cut your grass, you cut weeds. It's wild and, we, and it's work is something that actually tames it. It alters some realm of creation constructively. And so this extends beyond to what we're paid for. Making your bed in the morning is work. Right? Making a meal is work. Changing a diaper is work. Cutting hair. Arranging sounds into organized notes that are singable, like we just did, is work. Prepping a lesson. This is some constructive altering of some realm of creation that is for the purpose of the good of our neighbor. 
It's a task that Adam did. But notice there's this aspect. It says that God put Adam in the garden, put the man in the garden to work. So God's sovereign activity of initiative is to take this man, put him there, and command him, the first command. Subdue, have dominion. Be fruitful, subdue, have dominion. So there's vocation here. This is work is part of this larger issue of vocation. God's calling all humans to subdue some realm, to have dominion somewhere. God has put us here to do that. So this is a general vocation, a specific vocation, because we're not gifted to do everything. Some are not good at numbers, so you shouldn't be a mathematician. Or scientists or something, right? Others are good at certain things, and, and hopefully our callings can line up with that. But work is of the nature that it is God's calling and command to all of humanity to do, to subdue and to have dominion. And I can tell you, when I was a teenager, I mean, you know, most people don't like to work, right, when you're young. You hate chores. You hate doing stuff, you know. I hate it making my bed. Let me tell you what, motivated me as a 15-year-old. I heard a sermon, and they talked about this calling to have dominion, to take control of a realm, that we have this task to go take some territory. And I don't know, it just hit me in my 15-year-old boy mind that making my bed is taking territory. I mean, that's funny, but in a real sense, it appealed to the, God. If he calls us to do, take dominion, he wires us to do it. To take some territory for him and bring it under his reign and control. And there was something about that motivation that animated me to even just make up my bed in the morning. I look at it and go, there is an opportunity to take dominion. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's seize. It didn't work every day. <laughs> But it appealed to me. And I think, I, I think young people, I think this appeals to young people. I noticed in working with urban men that looking at the hill, the task, like you need to father your children. You need to love your wife. Saying, let's, 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 let's set out this task and get a strategy. That that animates and motivates men I've worked with more than any other thing. Saying how godly it is, which it is, and, and things. Saying there is a hill to take. There's dominion to be had here in your home, in your bedroom, your homework. Take dominion. Somehow motivates and animates and just energizes because God has wired us for it. He's called us to do what he has enabled us to do. And our affections are somehow even marred by sin somehow oriented and ordered and directed toward taking dominion, subduing. Don't you just lovely, you know, I hate cutting grass, but I love admiring the dominion <laughs> afterwards and reflecting on how we t I took every square inch of grass. <laughs> dominion, it's wired into us. God has created us, and so it's part of our psychological wiring. And work is dominion and subduing, and it's our general calling. But also, let me note something else here. In verse 
17, is it? There's that warning attached, the tree, right? I want you to work. I want you to subdue. I have dominion. Be fruitful and all. But of the tree, in the midst of the garden, don't eat. Don't even touch it. Don't eat. And what that says, of, of the many things it says, that through our work, through our subduing and taking of dominion, all that we can do, all that we're called to do, means, though, we were never intended to have it all. Work will not gain us paradise. There is a no. Your work won't, won't get you something. This tree, it will not get you that. All you're subduing, all your dominion taking has a limit. It will not yield everything. Because you're the creature, I'm the creator, you're not intended to have it all. I own it all. That's in part. But also notice the very, again, the very specific nature beyond the dominion and subduing. It says in verse 15, he was put in the garden to work and to keep it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Or to, you know, to till it and guard it. Put hands and whatever tools would have been formed or fashioned into the dirt. Till it. Make it useful. Guard it. Keep it. But that word pair, that's the exact phrase you, you'll see in tabernacle language in Numbers. Well, the work of the whole, the work, whole work of the Levites is characterized. The priests, the sons of Aaron, through the sanctuary, is characterized as working and keeping it. And I think we're supposed, for many other reasons, we're supposed to see temple. And you read different commentators on Genesis, especially Jewish commentators, who who, who note that the imagery and the, the shape and direction of the garden and all these various factors speak to a kind of proto-priesthood of Adam. That Adam was like a pre-priest. That we're supposed to see the temple, temple imagery in his task and what he's doing. That the garden scene evokes a temple sanctuary scene. The place where God meets with his people and the priest mediating God's presence. And it suggests that we're supposed to see our work not just as mere utilitarian activity that does good. Beyond just the, this is a valuable thing for my neighbor, Adam isn't just planting. He isn't just plowing. He's actually, he's, he's priesting. He's doing this coram deu in the presence of God. Not just as a utilitarian activity divorced from God's presence. So in a sense, at that triangle, ideally things are combined. Work is a kind of small W worship. <laughs> Not formal, gathered, special presence worship. But a serving God in the labor. Directly. And it used to be, probably until the, mod until the modern econ economy and, and, and industrial revolution, that work was also 
a function of families. Family units were units of production, not units of consumption. Today in the West, most families are consumers, and we leave it up to businesses to produce. It used to be, right? With fa the family was this unit, and you wanted to have a bunch of boys to, 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 to farm the land and, and a bunch of girls who bear children. They were a unit of fruitful production and labor and family. So those tri that triangle used to be closer together than it is in our own kind of experience. But he's, he's planting, he's plowing, he's keeping, he's tilling, and he's doing this in the presence of God. It's like this, this priest. So that makes work really a holy vocation, as it were. Again, not special presence gathered, church gathered, but church scattered when we're out doing holy vocation is work. Our work is a, a holy vocation without making the super distinction between the utilitarian actions that serve our neighbor and worship of God. time do we have to? I, I, I'm losing track of time. Michael, where are you? Oh. Andrew, what time do we have to? But what, to, I mean, what do we go to? I don't, I started at six. That's it. If I want, we haven't got anywhere here. Oh, man. Okay. 20. 710? Okay. Okay, let's do that. All right. There's so much. Let me just say something really quick. Okay, so value in work. I mean, we like to make distinctions in work. I'm going to mention later how in Roman Greco culture you had all this. You had this kind of uh, gradated levels of work where the slaves did the most base work and Aristotle writes in politics how people were oriented to do work that didn't involve their minds and complexity of thought and things like that. The politicians did the practical society running business. But, oh, if you were a philosopher, you got a chance to enjoy the contemplative life. You just went around using your brain and reflecting on platonic forms and things, which was the highest level. So escaping manual labor. This is where we get this division, right? Where we don't see the one who trims hedges and the hedge fund manager as doing equally valid work. When actually, we are. And God is a God who puts his hands in the dirt. He made us out of dirt. And if you read ancient Near Eastern accounts of their gods around that time, they created man to get away from having to put their hands in the dirt. And God takes dirt and forms us. He's a God who gets his hands dirty. <laughs> and doesn't make these distinctions between contemplative life, this high form of just using your mind, knowledge worker, and manual worker and labor. If you want to read a scathing commentary on this, read John Calvin on Luke chapter 10. <laughs> with Mary and Martha, and Martha's done the, the, you know, the different things. And John Calvin just goes after the scholastic Greco-Roman view of labor as contempl contemplation as the highest form of labor and work and just demolishes that. One of these times he just he seems to gets angry with his pen <laughs> and says there's no distinction to be had here. And I love, let me read this example of how this distinction doesn't even exist. Um, at a functional level, 
Here's what one author says. How dare I believe that my particular job really matters in a world where millions upon millions are working? And he says, we may begin a response to that natural query by thinking of the old story about why a great battle was lost. Okay, so why was this battle lost? Because a key general was delayed in getting to the front. Why? By his horse going lame. Why? For having cast a shoe. Why? Because nails dropped out. Why? Thanks to the blacksmith who hammered them into the hoof carelessly. Now, who was counted most in causing the defeat? Was it the general or the smith or the horse or the shoe or the nails? How would you answer that? You can't, right? It's all integrated. It's all important. There's no meaningful distinction in real valuable work. The one who nails hoofs onto the horse is doing something as meaningful, not as consequential perhaps, but as meaningful in terms of work, in terms of an activity of subduing and, and dominion, as the general who makes the big, huge decisions about how many men to send and where to send. This all can be holy vocation. Now, let me really quickly, you know, this is supposed to point up the goodness, the, the goodness of work, but what in the world happened? <laughs> Why when... People are surveyed. Seven out of ten people say they hate work. They hate their job. Because after creation, that beauty was interrupted by a catastrophe. <laughs> the fall, the entrance of sin, to use Paul's language, into the world. And how it is spoken of specifically as something that affects Love, our relationships, and labor. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the catastrophe that work undergoes. Right? Where, where the consequences of Adam's disobedience in eating the fruit are spelled out. And I'm keying in on verse 16 in chapter 3. Now, work or labor will be done, or 19, that's verse 19, will be done by the sweat of our brow, that there'll be thorns and thistles, that being fruitful and multiplying will be attended by pain, the most basic activity of childbirth that keeps civilization going is painful now, and by consequence, everything included in that and after that. Basically, you could characterize work and everything else, but we're thinking about work, because it's pointed out specifically here, as now being painful toil. Toil. The beauty and the goodness of this call to subdue, to take dominion, to guard and keep, to, to, to till and keep the garden is attended in all ways, in all places, in all times with some degree, varying degrees, of painful toil. 
And just really quickly to spell out a little bit of that. This means that labor, work, which is supposed to be fruitful, becomes characterized by a measure of fruitlessness. It doesn't yield what we want it to yield. It doesn't give us what we put in fully. And you know this. I expect the job to be X amount of hours, right, when I plan out my schedule and week, and I get half done in twice the hours. There's a fruitlessness element that is very frustrating. The world is supposed to yield freely, unconstrained production. But sin makes it painful toil that doesn't give us what we want it to give. Things take longer. They're harder than anticipated and expected. So what's supposed to be fruitfulness takes on a measure of fruitlessness. But then also futility. There's a futility. There's a seeming pointlessness that enters. And you see this more in Ecclesiastes when he talks about labor. He says, so I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. So it doesn't produce or yield the the, the measure of fruit we wanted to, to yield anymore. Our outcomes don't match our input often. But also, it doesn't produce the meaning that we want it to. It doesn't give us the sense of significance that we long for it. And if again, if you read Marx on this, he was a master of exploiting the alienated worker. You know, when you work on a farm, you get to see the fruit of your labor at the, the end product. You're eating what you've labored. <laughs> You're seeing the whole process. The Industrial Revolution brought factories and organizations companies where you're just doing one little part of this massive cog of production. And, you, and work loses meaningless, loses meaning and significance when you can't see the fruit. And Marx was a master at exploiting that. Hammer and sickle <laughs> caused a revolution by exploiting this sense of meaninglessness that people found in their work when they couldn't put it all together. I was uh, interviewing, talking with a young man in the church I was working with about this, and he read the Communist Manifesto by Marx. Well, he was a college student, and he read that, and it actually caused him to quit college. <laughs> but it actually helped him find his calling because he was, his, he's a son of a professor, but he himself loves to work on cars. And he just found the classes feeding the sense of insignificance and meaninglessness. He didn't want to be this knowledge class worker because he's really good at fixing expensive cars. And reading Marx and all that kind of frustration that Marx was evoking from his reader about doing certain kinds of work that don't have meaning and saying, see, the bourgeoisie have it in for you, caused him to quit college, uh, and take up this job now at this expensive car place. So it actually worked in reverse for him. It didn't cause him to, to revolt. It caused him to find his vocation, his calling. But work takes on this fruitlessness, and it takes on this futility. 
And this is all because of the, this, this sad, catastrophic intrusion into the order of things by sin. In creation, God blessed the garden. The garden was good and it was blessed. In the fall, the ground was cursed. <laughs> so in all of our work, you know, what you're, you're feeling, you're not schizophrenic if you're feeling there's something good about this. God blessed it. He created it. But there's something incredibly frustrating about this. It's like we're experiencing blessing and cursing. We're experiencing the goodness of it, but the actual fruitlessness and, and the futility simultaneously when we work. That's creation and fall. And we got to reckon with the story we live in. God created it good, wired us to pursue it and want it and to do it. But sin cursed things. And so it's hard. And so we feel bifurcated. You know, I love to study. And there's something that drives me to pursue knowledge. But it is hard. The eyes hurt. The concentration lapses. We, that is what we are to feel. <laughs> that sense of goodness and desire to take dominion and subdue to God's glory, but the frustration of fruitlessness and futility. This is the goodness and blessing of creation, but yet the curse that the fall causes to attend good things and to disorder things. Any comments for a couple minutes? We've got eight minutes. Eh? Could go on forever. I'm sorry, did that surprise you? Did it surprise everybody? <laughs> oh, yes, I hear it. <laughs> you know what? Let me just spell out a couple more of the consequences, just some more concrete ways that the fall has affected work. Right? Um, so generally, that, that, that all is meaninglessness, this fruitlessness and this futility that, that, it, that happens. But... Some of the ways it plays out, right? You just go right into the next book at Exodus, and you see, you, you see how far we fell with just Cain and Abel. You had you had workplace violence between brothers, <laughs> right? I mean, I interviewed a bunch of people and a bunch of pastors about their work, and you know what? The biggest struggle—I was a little surprised by this, though I shouldn't have. The biggest struggle was gossip in the workplace. Christians just are just overwhelmed with all the tearing down fellow image bearers that happens in the midst of a day and working, right? So the alienation that, that happens when you're trying to do work and meaningful work and there's just all the sins just erupts in terms of tearing down one another and talk. And you see it in the kind of stratification. You see it in the exodus. Right in the opening, the Jews were enslaved to the Egyptians. So this kind of coerced labor where you're not free to pursue the calling of God, but you're forced and, and coerced. Kind of like the, early, the factory conditions in the early industrial period. You see the stratification. And just general things like mismatched employment. Doing a job that you don't feel humanly suited to, that, don't, that don't, doesn't appeal to your capacity. Being a round peg in a square hole. Mismatched employment, underemployment, work that doesn't yield enough, 
to, 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 to take care of the other dimensions of life. And there's just, there's just, and in poverty, we're working poor, where you have more month than money. And just can't meet. So all these things, sin just kind of messes up the whole, the whole thing. And just how righteous dominion becomes domination. The impulse to dominion because of sin is disorder and it becomes domination. A hyper-controlling boss. Or husbands that are tyrannical in the home. Right? This impulse for dominion, a good thing, created, becomes domination. Trying to subdue people unrighteously. And there's so, so many different things. And also, you know, the fall created a whole new economy of labor. I have a civil engineering friend. And I used to, he goes around and he expects rusted bridges to make sure the stability is strong. I said, your whole job is predicated on the fact that our first parents blew it. You have a work. You got a degree. You work 40, 50 hours a week on the whole basis that our first parents messed up. You have to make sure that the fall doesn't kill people with falling bridges. Or doctors and nurses. There's, all, there's a whole economy. The fall created an economy of labor where we're pushing back on the effects of sin. The military, right, where we take plowshares and turn them into swords because of sin. We have to actively protect against attack and domination external. And close. Fashion is a result of the fall. You read Calvin, and Calvin just blasts France and calls it the most you know, like decadent nation because of the clothes the men wear. So this is this is this is organized fall fashion. <laughs> we cover our shame. You think. Covering our shame is a multi-billion dollar industry. See how, we've, see how messed up the world is? We don't even think about it anymore. God has created labor good. Fall has messed everything up. But, and the fall has created new kinds of labor and, and a new kind of economy. And it's also, you know what it's done though? What, what Christians have done is out of redemption. We'll talk about that next. Out of redemption... We Christians have always sought to minimize the tyrannical effects of toil. For instance, like medieval Europe, it was the monks who were the first society to build an economy on non-human power rather than on the backs of slaves and coolies, they called it. You know, the wind turbine, it used to be humans pushing that thing constantly to grind grain and things. And the monks said, no, we want to minimize human suffering and toil. Let's use wind. They were the first one to build water turbines. Went down by the river in some little folly cliff and built turbines that would spin it and, and would grind grain and do different things. This was monks thinking, how can we minimize human toil? And technology at its best in creation is this extension of human capacity, right? Calculators help us do math in a way that our brain is insufficient. So technology, and it uses ways to speed up labor and produce more. 
So there's all kinds of all kinds of ways that the fall has impacted our work. But think about the the larger paradigm. What does creation mean? God's good creation and call to us. What does that mean for work? And what is work now in light of his good creation but the catastrophe of the fall? And we'll continue the biblical story next, all right? Thank you, brother. In a moment, we're going to break for uh, Chick-fil-A down in the uh, Fellowship Hall. Um, We'll come back here at 7.35. Uh, One thing I do want to tell you that our church does related to the subject, we have a ministry called Christian Entrepreneurs. Our church has, uh, for a small church, we have a lot of entrepreneurs in it. And we get together usually once a month for breakfast. We go to someone's uh, place of business. They show us uh, what they do and explain uh, their industry and what they're up against. And then we pray for each other, spend some time in the Word and talk about um, some issue related to doing uh, work well. So um, I, there's some business cards out there. I'd love you to grab them if you're interested in uh, coming to one. Andre's been there. Uh, David Wolf, some of you know David, um, has been there, and it's encouraging. We want to see more people out uh, out in the world doing the work unto the Lord and, and being an entrepreneur and being a business owner. You run into problems that a lot of times folks don't understand how to fire family members or Mm. um, who to hire, HR practices, uh, what's a fair wage, right? That's a major issue in the book of Proverbs. Uh, There's all sorts of issues you don't think about that we just take our, uh, we follow what the world says instead of allowing God's word to inform us. There is a biblical way to think about uh, these issues. God's God's word is full of incredible wisdom. Uh, so uh, I'd love to talk to you more about that if you're interested. And uh, again, those um, cards are out there in the foyer. And let's just pray for the meal right here. Father, we first off just thank you uh, for giving us this opportunity to gather and worship you, God. Uh, to reflect on your word, to have your word uh, shape us and change us. Uh, to expose our heart, to expose the way that we are not uh, thankful for the work you've given us. And also to comfort us to know that uh, the suffering we do do go through is is normal, and it's not merely uh, just our weakness. And we thank you all the more that a day is coming where there will be no thorns and thistles, a day where we will continue to labor, but we will labor without this curse. We thank you so much for sending your Son, our Savior, to redeem us from the curse of the law to. Uh, forgive us of our sins and rescue us from uh, the fear of your wrath. We thank you for that, Father. Father, we pray now that as uh, we eat this food, that we would do so with a heart full of gratitude to your glory and that you would bless the fellowship and would be pleasing to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.